I'm from a third world country. I've seen propaganda. I knew the word propaganda when I was eight years old. You know, the fastest growing segment of gun owners are women, black women, especially. In this episode, I sit down with Virginia Lieutenant Governor Winsome Sears, author of How Sweet It Is, Defending the American Dream. We discuss her remarkable story, her values, and what drives her. Here I am, second in command in the former capital of the Confederate States. Don't tell me America hasn't changed. Of course it has. There is no utopia. But America is the best we've got, and we're going to keep her. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Lieutenant Governor Winston Sears, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you for having me, Jan. I've really been enjoying reading your autobiography. And, you know, let, let's start here. Um, your grandmother and my grandmother, who I actually never knew because she died when my mother was nine years old, had something in common. And I, I would say, you know, kind of an interest in helping others above and beyond. And, and that influenced your life significantly. Mm -hmm. And I want to start there. Well, yeah, my grandmother was a very interesting woman. You know, she started with nothing. When you read the book, you'll see that she was born in a one-room hut, and it's still there today. Sadly, it doesn't belong to my family, but maybe uh, we can buy it back again. But I'm very proud of it. You know, it, it's got boards of all shapes and sizes and colors to, to the building, the structure. And I say to myself, this is a reminder of where I've come from. And, you know, we can't afford to get too big in our britches because, as she would have said to me, the same people you meet on the way up are the same ones you're going to meet on the way down. So you treat everyone with respect. So, yeah, she was a one-woman force. But then she's my paternal grandmother, but so was my mother's mother. Um, I, you know, grandparents are, they're, I think maybe because they have more time, for you as a grandchild, um, you learn a lot. Well, the, the thing that I noted is, or that you noted, right, was that she made a point, there, there, you know, she would be helping people out when there was mm -hmm. very little around, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes people would have issue with that even. Yeah. Like, why are, you, why, why are you doing this? This isn't yeah. your family, so. Yeah, well, we as the grandchildren would. Uh, d don't they have anyone to help them? You know, this is our, you know, you get jealous. Uh, this is our grandmother and we're our grandparents. Uh, and, but this is just the woman she was. And you think when you grow up, you'll never do that. But because you saw the example, you can't get away from it for too long before you, there's something in you that the seed was planted. And then you find yourself wanting to help others. You know, if, if you don't help others who need that help, you see it. What kind of a person are you? You're callous. You, you walk by someone and you just leave them be. Now, I'm not saying that you help every single person um, because there's some that you can't help no matter how you try. Uh, and some you have to understand. You have to have the discretion how to help them. You know, may, maybe I'm not going to give you the money to go buy the food. I will buy the food and bring it to you. Yeah. Well, you know, so while we're talking about this, I mean, one of the most, I guess, traumatic parts of your book is actually you figuring out how to deal with your daughter, Dijon, 
Uh -huh. And then, you know, again, you know, tra tragic events that followed. Mm -hmm. And so dealing with mental illness in yeah. the family, um, well, tell me about that. Yeah, yeah you, she's growing up and you're not, you're thinking maybe she's just rebellious because she's not doing what we would say the normal things, you know. Um, you just don't think that it could be a mental disease and, and nobody wants to talk about mental issues you know it's and and so you're not recognizing the signs and when it's happening during the teenage years you think it's a rebellious teenager but then she had that real break in college and we had to go and get her you know and and then finally um, and because she was an adult by that time the doctors aren't telling you everything and so she stopped taking her medication and uh, she it, but the doctors did tell us that sometimes mental illness gets to a place where they come back into themselves, you know. Um, the chemicals, uh, because she had a chemical imbalance, and they're, they're, she's working again, she's being productive again, and because of that, she assumes that she's fine, she doesn't need her medicine, and it's a roller coaster. She doesn't take her medication, she goes right back off of it, and it's this cycle. It's like a seven-month cycle, and, but you learn to recognize the sign, and by the time I did, it was, a, you know, cycle number whatever, but it was too late. She seemed to be on the right foot that, no, you have to keep taking your medication. You know, we, we even had to watch her stick out your tongue, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera, as an adult. So we just thought she was back on the right track, but she clearly wasn't. You, you had a premonition, yes. actually, of sorts, when and the day or the few days yeah. where... Actually, it started with my granddaughter, Faith, mm -hmm. because a month before they went to heaven, um, she would, Faith would say, Grandma, Jesus is giving us a big house, a really big house, and I would just wonder, what, what, what is she talking about? And, um, and, and then she started drawing big houses, you know, in the childlike way that she did. And, and then one night, uh, because we, my daughter would drop them off and we would go to Bible study, uh, one night I heard her praying and she said, thank you, Jesus, for the big house you're going to give us. And that's when I thought, okay, something's going on. I'm going to ask my daughter, is she moving? Well, the next day she came to pick them up and I asked, are, are you guys going somewhere? Because Faith keeps talking about you're going into a big house. And she said, I don't know what she's talking about, Mom. We're not moving. But now I understand the child was trying to say mansion. And the Bible, Jesus promises a mansion. But she didn't know the word, so she kept saying big house. Well, the day before they went to heaven, uh, my daughter, again, came to pick them up. and. Uh, and she bent down and I just, and she looked at me and I just saw a skull, the skull, the skeletal skull in her face. And I said, oh, she stopped taking her medication. I've got to talk to her about that, but I'll do it next week because I don't want a war because that was well, always inevitably what happened. Well, Faith, once again, she came and sat on this hip and she asked a question of me. But I cannot tell you to this day what the question was because I heard a voice fill the room and, and ask, what are you going to do if she dies? 
that was sort of jarring. And I looked to see if my other daughter had heard the voice, but she hadn't. My other granddaughter, they hadn't. My husband was in the kitchen, nobody. I was the only one who heard it. So I thought, hmm. And Faith jumped off my hip, came around, looked me in the face and said, Grandma, because it was obvious I was not here, you know. And, and so I, yes, and then I just studied the curvature of her nose, I studied her whole face, I just studied her because the voice had asked, what are you gonna do if she dies? And the next day, they were going on home. Well, I'm very, I'm very sorry for your loss. I know this was, you know, some years ago, of course, but it was, it, anyway, it's been incredibly evocative um, how you, how you, you know, explain this, and also how it, um, I guess, influenced you, hmm. your thinking, what you learned from it. Yeah. You know, and that's actually a big theme, and and yeah. it seems your writing or in your life that. Yeah. Yeah, trauma just seems to be it's it's a, a a clear and definitive point, and what do you do now? Are you going to disintegrate? Are you yourself going to lose your mind? Are you just going to exist until you die? That happened with my grandmother when she died when I was 18, and I was supposed to start college that August, but when she died that. Uh, that uh, July, I thought my life was over and I'm just gonna die. I'm just going to die. Here I was 18 and I'm just, I was so traumatized, but the Marine Corps saved me when I joined <laughs> and yeah, the few, the proud, and I thought that's what I need, discipline. And, and then here it is again, another traumatic death. And what do you do? Well, I had two remaining children, my husband and I. You can't fall apart, they need you too. Um, and so you, you, you find a reason to get up every morning after you collapse, of course, because there are three caskets in front of you. What are you gonna do? How do you go to the field with three, not one, not two, but three? Yeah, I mean, you, you have lo to find a you way. You lost your two, two granddaughters. My, yes, yeah. my daughter and the two grandchildren. So, and I don't say lost because I know where they are. They're in heaven. They're where I wanna be. And that is very comforting because they don't, they're not subject to the vagaries of life anymore, the insults and all that. So they're fine, they're just fine. Well, you know, okay, so speaking of insults, let's, uh, let's, let's work on that for a moment. I mean, the, the term not, not black enough yeah. comes up a lot <laughs> um, in, in, in your book and, you know, questions about this. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so, what is this thing? It's all you know? political, and it unfortunately is a divisive type of argument, you know, that, and it's happened, as, especially during my first um, run for election for office, and uh, just because I'm a Republican, and I'm black, and I guess I'm supposed to be a Democrat if I'm black, and, you know, this is America. Nobody tells us, you know, what we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to be. And, and et cetera, et cetera. We make those decisions for ourselves. But uh, for some people, it's all about political power. And if you can keep all of us, you know, in the one basket, then, then we need you as our political savior. I don't need a savior. I already have that. I need you, the government, to get out of my way so that I can accomplish. This is America. My dad came to America with a dollar seventy-five, and just to picture it, seven quarters, seven quarters. 
and yet he succeeded and he is comfortably retired now. Well, and, and at a time when there was, you know, actually some pretty serious barriers yes. for him. Yes, right? he came. More, more than now, there 1963, would be, 1963, right? yeah. 17 mm -hmm. days before Dr. King gave his I Have a Dream speech. Think about that. He, as a black man, having read and being told what to expect in America, begged anyway, begged to come to America. Begged, thought this was where he could start his, restart his life. And then he brought me. And you know who else knows that? America is the place to be? The people at the southern border. They're throwing their children literally over the fence to plant them in American soil. Now, I say you have to do it the right way. We have to know who's entering the country. We have to know everything about you. Uh, we have to give you permission. But they believe that if they get their foot on American soil, the trajectory, the opportunities, everything will be for the better. They're not believing about, you know, racist, sexist, whatever. They don't believe that. Well, and I, and I might add, you know, despite all the huge problems that, you know, I'm seeing and many Americans are seeing, they're actually right about that, I would say, yeah. right? They want America to stay America. They want the America they hear about where opportunities abound, where if you work hard, you can make it, where you, you can really literally decide your own future, where you're free. You're free even to fail. I mean, what government do you know that puts in their constitution happiness? The pursuit of the, the government is interested in you pursuing happiness? Now, that wasn't always true. Of course we know that. Uh, but we are not there anymore. And I am proof that I was elected under the same constitution that existed way back then. And not only that, but here I am, second in command in the former capital of the Confederate States. Don't tell me America hasn't changed. Of course it has. Now, are there problems? Of course. There are problems in other countries. There is no utopia. But America is the best we've got, and we're going to keep her. Well, talking about immigration, um, I, from everything I've seen and the experts I've spoken with, I'm convinced that the main reason that there is this, you know, kind of huge interest in the southern border and kind of crossing at the southern border is because people know they'll get to stay, basically, mm -hmm. right? Again, with all the perils of, of, of getting through, you know. Um, so how are, how are you approaching that? Is this an issue for Virginia, right? Well, as, as we know, really, there, there are no more border states, per se, because um, the, the immigrants coming through, they don't stay in Texas and Florida and, you know, New Mexico, et cetera, et cetera. They're coming in California. They're coming up through the rest of the states. And just in case they're not, which they are, Texas et al. is making sure we get some of them. And you hear, for example, the state in which I grew up, uh, New York, they're crying, crying. And yet they don't have the numbers of immigrants that uh, Texas has, for example. And yet they're crying with the little, with the small percentage that they do. It's, it, it impacts all of us. Fentanyl, which is coming across the border from China especially, is killing at least nine Virginians every day. We have um, 
other types of drugs coming through, we have crime that's affecting us, coming because of people coming through the border. There are terrorists who have come through the border that now I understand the FBI, the CIA, whoever, they're trying to locate some of them. Uh, th there's so much happening. I mean, dr uh, sex trafficking, child trafficking, it's happening. It's coming up for uh, maybe sometimes on the 95 side, but definitely on the 81, 85 side, going all the way through. Some of these small towns in Virginia, they're affected by this. You'd be surprised. You'd think the rural areas, not so much. No. So we're all affected by it. We have to know who's in the country. A country without borders is not a country, after all. You know, I, a, as we're speaking here, you know, I can't help but think about this recent election, you know, not mm -hmm. a few weeks before as we're sitting here yes. and filming right now. And, uh, you know, I remember you saying something in the book. I think actually I, I, took, I took a note, you know, you, when you, you, of course, talk about your win, how, how sweet it is, yes. right? Um, and you say, you know, it was a win for, uh, you know, Republicans, Democrats, and everybody in between, one Virginia. But this, ele this election recently, it seems like, do you, do you read that as people saying, we don't want these policies that you were elected on? How, how do you read what happened? Well, I think fundamentally, at, at, at its very base, elections are about numbers. Elections are about turnout. And in our race in 2021, for example, there were 500,000 Republicans who voted for us, who the very next year set out the race for Congress, etc. And so you, no business can lose, uh, small business especially, medium-sized business in particular, can lose 500,000 customers and think they're going to be a viable enterprise. It's impossible. So what we had to do is we kept losing because these are, these, these are people who only vote if it's a presidential race or if it's a gubernatorial race. Otherwise, they sit it out. And so the Democrats, mind you, they have the same problem. They have their low propensity voters, we call them. But they've figured it out. They have a solution. They get them to vote absentee. So whether you come to the polls or not, a ballot is mailed to your home. That is the objective, after all, is to get the ballot in the hand. And they figured out they're about three to four years ahead of us. We were able to cut into that. We were able, in fact, to lessen the, the amount of well, we won in certain of our races the absentee ballot numbers before election day mm -hmm. uh, because we were going as Republicans into election 17,000 votes already down and having to make that up, 10,000 votes down. We cut into that significantly. We have to just keep on doing it. But, you know, the Democrats in this race cycle they raised $110 million for state rep, we call them delegates, for state senator, $110 million. We only raised 77. And the reason why we raised 77 was because we have a governor, Governor Yunkin, who really pushed for it and was able to bring that money in. 
So I think we're going to do better. We did pick up a Senate seat. We didn't win the Senate outright. Mm -hmm. um, we did uh, lose the House, yes, but it could have been much more but, worse. But basically, you don't think it was a referendum on the policies that you and Governor Young can... No, because right. I tell you what, when we were going door to door, doing the door knocking, and uh, we were letting them know that um, Democrats believe in abortion up until the day that the child could be born. And even afterwards, because we had, in uh, uh, two years ago, when we had the Democratic governor, Ralph Northam, who is a pediatrician, a pediatrician said that it came on the radio and explained how you could have an abortion afterwards, after the baby's born. And he said, we're going to, if the infant is born alive, we're going to keep the infant this is his infant, he said, comfortable until the mother decides what to do. What, what, what are you talking about? The baby's already here, breathing on its own. So you're just going to leave the baby on the abortion table to die? No help? What, are we, what, what kind of a society have we become? So when we were explaining this at the door, the, the voters said, no, we don't believe that. We don't believe in that at all. You see, they never heard the whole message. Well, that, that's actually one of the criticisms that, I, that I've heard, which is that um, there's a very successful messaging campaign around, you know, Roe, what, what Roe versus Wade or the end of Roe versus Wade actually meant, um, which was something like, you know, no abortion anywhere. Yeah. Or something, right? And that was which a lie. Which obviously is, is, it was is, a is lie. not the case. It was a lie. Because but, if, if, if the life and the health of the mother is at stake, we, we can't force her to, to go forward with it. Her life is in danger, you know. Um, we had rape and incest, uh, but you never heard that. The Democrats just flat out lied. But next time we'll be different. Okay. Well, and just, you know, to touch on, I, I don't want to harp on abortion too long, but you, you are pretty strong in your thought, you know, reading in the book too, that you believe it's a, especially for the black community, it's been like a form of eugenics, which is, um, I don't know, a controversial position, I guess. No, it's not a controversial position at all because it's a fact. Well, I guess facts can be controversial, but the truth is the truth. Margaret Sanger started Planned Parenthood to help one of the reasons uh, to get rid of the black population, to get rid of the black population. And in fact, it's one of the reasons why there is a Planned Parenthood in New York who took Margaret Sanger's name off because it was noted that she said, if the N-word ever find out that this will get rid of their population, their babies, then we're in trouble. So it's amazing to me that those who did not want black people to be around are somehow our saviors. And in fact, black women Nationwide, we make up uh, of the childbearing population, I believe it's 14%, and yet we have 40%, 46% of the abortions. If you'd wanted to get rid of us, you couldn't have planned anything better. So, yeah, I want our babies to live. Okay. And other babies. Right. <laughs> I'm going to read from here. Um, you were the first woman lieutenant governor of Virginia, the first black woman, the first naturalized female citizen. Of course, you're an immigrant from yes. Jamaica. And first female veteran elected to statewide office. That's a lot of firsts. I, but I, I don't see that being as celebrated as, 
as one would expect? You know, it's, it's a political thing, again, because I am destroying narratives. It is said that Republicans hate immigrants. Well, here I am. I was born in Jamaica. It is said that Republicans hate black people. Well, here, here I am again. It is said that Republicans are, you know, not too loving of women in general. Well, here I am. I am destroying all those narratives. And the funny thing is I did nothing special to become lieutenant governor except stay in school and study. And I try to tell that to whoever will listen, that you will dictate your life, even if, well, children you can't. You depend on your parents to fight for you, the parents, on your parents to, to love you and, and, and to, to care for you. But you can't be 40 years old later and continue to blame your parents. At some point, we're going to take responsibility for our own lives. It's your life. So if you have to restart your life at whatever age, maybe at 20, whatever it is, restart it. Get going. I didn't go to college until I had three children under five. I'm saying you can do this. This is not some Pollyannish comment. But yes, um, you know, my win is not so celebrated, but it's not a win for me necessarily. It's a win for everyone because they can say, if Winsome can do it, I can do it too. And I think that's the uplifting message. Yeah. No, I mean, and you're, I mean, just a, you're, had a small business, electrical. Mm -hmm. You were an electrician, I guess, in the Marine. An electrician you know. and a diesel mechanic, so you right. could smell me before you saw right. me. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, there's just a lot of things about you which are kind of unexpected, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Right? Breaking the, the gender norms, I guess, in some ways. Whatever right? that is. You know, yeah. I've all just always been taught that you have to do for self. Nobody's going to do it for you. If it is to be, it's up to me. You know, it's that old adage. And really, it's your life. If you don't care about your own life, who will? Are, are you going to just roll over and die? Or are you going to get up and go get it done? Go get it done. <laughs> yeah, you, I think you told me uh, there's always tomorrow, no matter how hard it seems. If you want, you know, I was asking yeah. if there was something you wanted to make sure uh, folks, yeah. you know, got out of our interview. I, 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 that's, a that's, a, that's a great message. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing that happens to you that hasn't happened to someone else. N nothing. You're facing that is so, so uh, unusual that, well, nobody in this world has ever faced that, and woe is me. Now, we don't make light of the things that people suffer abuse, whatever it is, um, racism, wh whatever it is. But do you allow your perpetrator to win? Or do you get up and say? And first, the first getting up is forgive them. Because as someone once pointed out, unforgiveness is like you drinking poison, expecting it to hurt someone else. No. You forgive that person, and sometimes you've got to forgive them as many times as it comes to your mind, and then you move on. And some days it's easier, and some days it's harder, but you move on. Because there was somebody who uh, really did a, a terrible thing to me, and one day I just decided, you know, I'm going to forgive. I'm just going to forgive. And, you know, I heard that that person had died eight years 
not long after I had decided to forgive. So had I carried that with me, I'd have been, uh, I'd, I'd have been angry at a dead person, a dead person waiting for that person to come and ask for forgiveness. So as I said, you, you've got to get the strength. You've got to find people who will energize you, who will encourage you, who sometimes will say, we can't, can't go down this road anymore. You know when you start down this road, you're going to end up in some depressive mode. Don't go there. You've got to find friends like that who will tell you like it is, who will pull you up at, out of it. So, yeah, surround yourself with those kinds of people. You're mentioning racism moments ago. Just, you know, for the record, um, a lot of people still today are saying America is a systemically racist country. How do you react to that? Well, those who uh, understand what it is, especially um, President Biden was asked that question, and he said, no, America is not a racist country. And then it was the same question that was asked of President Kamala Harris. And she said, America is not a race, systemically racist country. So if they're saying it doesn't exist, then, you know, I guess I'll agree with them. Because there are some people who, they see racism in everything. Now, are there racists? Of course. But then, if it's not racism in a country, it's colorism. You know, we, we had that issue with some people are lighter and some people are darker. It, if it's not that, it's sexism. If it's not that, it's classism. There are, we always find reasons to divide ourselves. Humans are good at that. It's in every country. But you know what? I don't see anybody leaving America for any of these other countries. They're all, as I said, breaking down the doors to get in. We work around things. We overcome things. Surely we're not back in the days of slavery. Surely we're not back in 1963 when my father first came, when there were real dog whistles, when there were real fire hoses. Surely we're not. We'll overcome and we'll keep overcoming, not victims. You know, um, during uh, COVID, starting in 2020 with all these shelter-in-place lockdown policies, all sorts of policies, bizarre monetary policy and so forth, um, you know, your, your business actually suffered mm -hmm. quite a bit. I mean, I, don't, I, couldn't, I didn't quite remember if, it, if that was it for it or you, you wrote it out in the end, but um, how, what's your view on what happened during that time? Well, um, you see that apparently there was a lot of overreach. There was a lot of stepping on toes and stepping on the Constitution. That shouldn't have happened. If you wanted to keep your job, you were forced to get a vaccine. You had waitresses, waiters, asking you for your vaccination status. Are you kidding me? You, you had houses of worship closed, businesses shut down. We will tell you. It, you had big box stores open, but mom and pop stores were closed because of government policies. COVID didn't shut us down. Government policy on COVID shut us down because Florida didn't shut down in the way that, for example, Virginia did. Our schools were closed. The public schools were closed. 
but yet private schools were open five days a week for a whole year. But the public schools were closed. What, COVID doesn't go to private schools? None of this made any sense. We had in Virginia, for example, the ABC store is a liquor store, state run. That one was open, but other stores were shut down. Why? Did they need spirits or something? You know, so yeah, there was a spirit in the air, all right, and it affected my business. Um, I remember that the governor then, Northup, declared that you had to have permission to be out in case the sheriff stopped you. What, 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 what country is this, you see? So we had South Dakota didn't shut down in the way that we did. And so everybody flocked to these free states, as they were being called. E even the Democrat, I saw AOC in Florida without a mask. But when she went back to do, you know, what are you doing there? Governor Pritzker from Illinois sent, locked his state down, but sent his wife and children to Florida, where everybody was free to do as they wished. So they're all hypocrites. Governor Newsom in California was hobnobbing and having a wonderful time with so many thousands of plates of dinner with donors, maskless. Speaker Pelosi was in California in San Francisco going from you know, getting her hair done without a mask, Fauci without a mask, until the camera caught them. So none of this made any sense. But the people, I think, they're slowly waking up. Well, so one of the, I guess, you know, themes that comes out in your autobiography is, I guess, dealing, dealing with fear. Right? Yes. Dealing with fear constructively. Mm -hmm. But the, here's, here's the connection. Um, during this time, I think you know we, we could call it industrial grade propaganda to sow fear was employed mm. at, at mass in an unprecedented scale, at least to my to my knowledge, with you know all these the newer tech, the newest technologies and so and enabled through social media, and it turns out it's very difficult for people to deal with that and to even see it for what it is. Yeah, right. probably because we're not used to it. I'm from a third world country. I've seen propaganda. I knew the word propaganda when I was eight years old. I knew about what that meant because we were taken over by a socialist Democrat, is what he called himself, and that's what AOC and her ilk call themselves, and oh, we're going to do this the right way, and it destroyed Jamaica, destroyed our economy, broadcast her over from Cuba. Cuba's only 45 miles from Jamaica now. Jamaica and Cuba have always had a good relationship. You know, my grandfather worked at Guantanamo Bay uh, way, way back then. But by then they were communists and they brought that Russian money over, started building schools, etc. destroyed Jamaica's economy, nationalized everything. I remember you couldn't buy the chicken unless you bought something else that went with the chicken. You know, we had supply issues. It was bad. And, multinational corporations who were doing so well in Jamaica and providing so many jobs up and left because they understood their profits were no longer theirs. You know, these communists, these socialists, one day they'll figure it out. Um, probably, we learn from history, we never learn from history, so maybe we won't ever learn that communism doesn't work, socialism is no good. 
Well, so, so how does that relate to what you see or seeing happening in this country now, I guess? Yeah, it sounds really good that, you know, we're all going to share and share alike, and except that what, in, in our work environments, at our jobs, you know that you work harder than your coworker. Do you want to share the bonus that you get with your coworker who didn't do half of the work that you did? Because that's what communism says. We're all going to share. Um, there is no merit in, in working hard. No, none of that makes any sense. If you work hard, you should get the reward. That sounds fair to anyone. I, I, I'm reminded of the classic teacher situation, teacher, teacher, in, in, in the school where he asked the class, all right, well, if you get an A, are you going to share your A with your classmate who got a D? Yeah, nobody wants that, do they? So let's just be real about how things really work in the real world. Um, one of the things that we hear communists or whoever, socialists, you know, um, say is, well, if you read the Bible, which apparently they pick and choose the scriptures that they want, it's, well, Jesus said uh, that you're supposed to share everything together, and, and that's one of the verses that talks about that, except they forget. When they talk to the rich young, when Jesus talks to the rich young ruler, he doesn't say, give everything away. He says, sell everything you have, and then come follow me. Sell. He doesn't say, give it. He says, sell it. So, there you are. No, that's that, that that's a interesting distinction that I that I that I've never heard about. Um, you know, uh, just something that just came to my mind actually is there's the when during the election in 2021, there's this poster that I don't know if it was a poster or just a photo that went viral mm. of you with a kind of menacing looking weapon. <laughs> I'm not talking about the sword here either. Oh, <laughs> um, but the Marine uh, NCO sword. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, so you know you're you're a fierce Second Amendment advocate. I mean, you were, and that was part of yeah. part of you were very clear about that from the outset. You know, the fastest growing segment of gun owners are women, black women, especially, because we understand that, um, especially those who were crying for the defunding of the police. Uh, who are we going to call when we are in need of rescuing? When I call 911, I want to know somebody's coming to help me, to rescue me. But in the meantime, what do I do if the intruder is entering and he has a gun? What am I going to, what do I do? I need my own protection while I'm waiting. And by the way, if you're my neighbor, you're going you're gonna to hope that if I'm going to help that, you know, well, we don't win some. You see what I mean? So we have to be able to protect ourselves. There are, I'm told, over 400 million guns in America. There are people who are not law-abiding. We're, we're, we're going to deal with those people. But how can there be 400 million guns and, and we're still safe as we are? So we just have to make sure it doesn't fall into the wrong hands. We need our protection. Well, you know, one of the 
things I've heard people saying lately and I've really been reflecting on is, uh, you know, you need the Second Amendment to protect the first. The first, yes. <laughs> I'm sure you've heard that a million times. Well, and, you know, I was just this morning before we were filming, I was at a hearing of this, you know, the uh, Subcommittee on Weaponization of Government mm -hmm. with, like, you know, as astonishing newer evidence even of, you know, basically government encroachment on the First Amendment. Have you been following this? Well, governments, I think, over time tend to want power more and more and more. The more that, you know, the Founding Fathers tried to devolve power when they wanted to make Washington a king. Thankfully, he said no to that. And then they realized, and this is through a Bible verse, Isaiah 33 and I believe 22. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our king. King, executive branch, lawgiver, judicial, legislative branch, I'm sorry, and judge, judicial branch. Hmm. The three branches of government. The Founding Fathers would have known this because John Knox spoke about it, the great philosopher, all the time. He was of their time. And so they devolved power. And of course, man being who he is, fights for his power. And so there comes the checks and balances. You know, they don't, we don't want encroachment from the legislative branch, on the judicial branch, on uh, the executive branch, fights. And that fight for power keeps, uh, like the wrong ends of the magnet, keeps power, you know. But then, invariably, there comes along some smooth talker and we give our, all our power to that person and off we go again. We learn from history, as someone said, we never learn from history. So, I mean, you know, the, the, the Romans tried it and it didn't work out very well. We, we tried, but, you know, we just have these well, petty tyrants. Let me share with you something I, that just struck me recently for the first time. So, you know, I've been learning with lightning speed about, you know, the American founding, what the Constitution was about, I mean, th over the last however many years. And it took me a while just to grasp that the whole concept, at least in my interpretation, I think you alluded, you said this, was to limit the concept of the Constitution and the approach of the U.S. government was to limit the obvious accumulation of power, which would happen when you put people in charge of anything, I mean, let's say, right? And so I was recently at, uh, at Mount Vernon, actually, um, where there's this reenactment of, uh, or I don't, perhaps it was, you know, creation from letters, but uh, the assistant to George Washington was, uh, uh, you know, basically speaking about his legacy. He had passed, and the thing that struck me—it's exactly you, you mentioned how he—they wanted to make him king, mm -hmm. and he absolutely refused this. Right? Um, I think I wonder if, you know. All of this was a great, fantastic idea until that moment mm. when George Washington actually said, actually, no, I'm not going to be as much as, there's a lot of great, good reason for me to be king. Look, there's a lot of people that aren't, are by, certainly my lesser. See, maybe he wasn't thinking this way, but he could have thought that. I mean, might have been right. Mm. It, he would have been a great ruler, right? Except that he said, no, I have to step away because I have to let this work itself out. And, may, and maybe that was the moment when this whole experiment, as they call it, actually became real. We're still experimenting, right? <laughs> yeah. and, and hopefully we'll, we'll keep it alive. It, 
in America. I, I think it's interesting that the military has to answer, you know, uh, to the president, um, that the generals aren't in charge. That's interesting. It's fascinating. Uh, and really, you couldn't have a coup in a sense that we see coups all around. It just wouldn't do. It is so ingrained in the American psyche. We're independent. We don't overrun one branch for the other branch for the But you never know. Anything can happen. So we hope for the best. And we need more civics classes. We need people mm -hmm. to, to understand more about how America came to be. And, and no, uh, she didn't get it right. Um, there were there there was um, atrocities on black people, atrocities on Indians. Yes, we don't deny that, um, but we learn from it, and here we are. As I said, people are breaking into the country, wanting to come. I just want to touch on the military for a moment, uh, because you know, a number for during again the COVID years, which I guess we're still kind of in. I, I was reading how the military is now asking people who are let go because they refuse to take the vaccine by mandate back, right? But at, at some point, I mean, people were, I think, even dishonorably discharged yes. because of this. Mm -hmm. um, and then at the same time, there's this, you know, a lot of criticism of the uh, military becoming more woke, like just basically a, a very different focus from what you imagine a military to be focusing on, which is the you know, defense of the nation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, yeah, uh, as I said, Constitution was trampled on quite a bit because of uh, COVID policies. You know, we didn't know very much about this vaccine. Now, I, I just, I said, you know, if you want to take the vaccine, take it. If you don't want to take it, then that's your prerogative. But we can't force people to put something in their bodies, you know. Um, just because you said so, where will it end then? If you're talking about your body, your whatever, your decision, then wouldn't that apply to COVID as, you know, vaccines? What new thing will we now think? Because you see, we've already started down this path. We, we've shut down businesses because the government's gonna tell you what to do uh, about that. Um, we shut down houses of worship. We shut down education. We, we, we shut the whole economy down. It was absolute power. And here in Virginia, the Democrats had absolute power. They had the executive branch. They had the legislative branch. And they ran wild. Whatever their hearts desired is what they did. Absolute power. And they went a bridge too far. And the very next year, the people elected us the Republicans, because they understood that all bets are off. When you keep my child out of school, you shut my business down, my business is dead, uh, you, you made certain decisions, and who are you? And so they, we had Democrats who voted for us. We had independents who voted for us. And we have to keep remembering these lessons because those who don't remember the past are doomed to repeat those errors. As it is said, just very quickly, like what should the military do now, with, given what you know what happened? The military has to remember that it's about guarding our safety and security, and we've got to 
be careful with the policies. But then again, I mean, uh, Congress has a role to play. Uh, this is the beauty, again, of the military. It's that the leaders are confirmed by the Congress. You know, it's not the, the president who makes the decisions about who is this general, who is uh, the colonel, who is et cetera, et cetera. No, we, we all have a part to play, and, and we've got to make sure that we first and foremost understand that we're supposed to protect the people, protect the people even from its own government. Um, Governor. And we are the people. <laughs> No, and Governor, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Uh, any final thoughts as we finish? Just one thing. In everything that we've already discussed, that it is your life. It's the one life you have. Live it to the fullest. Help others as you're coming along. Um, it's fear. Fear will always be with us. The fear of man. I read the Bible, for example, and I see great men being in fear, like David, David the giant slayer, David who slayed lions and bears as a boy, was afraid of a man, a political leader, feared for his life. So it's a common to all of us. If you're going to do something, do it afraid. Courage, I was once reading, is not the absence of fear. Courage is doing it even as you are afraid. So you take those shaking knees of yours and you go do it. If it's, you've got to challenge the boss, you've got to challenge the boss. Now, the reason why you're afraid is because there are consequences. You could lose your job. You could lose your life. But so many people, so many people got ahead of that fear. And yes, they suffered. Created America. Benjamin Franklin said to his fellow patriots, in the war against the British Revolutionary War. Gentlemen, either we hang together or we will surely hang separately. And in fact, some of them did hang and those who didn't lost everything. So, it is what it is. They lost everything but gained something. Yeah. Very, very valuable yeah. to many lost people. Lost family. <laughs> yeah, right. lost family, lost estates, lost everything. But here we sit. It's life. Well, Lieutenant Governor Winsome Sears, it's such a pleasure to have had you on. Thank you for having me. Thank you all for joining Lieutenant Governor Winsome Sears and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek.